From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. How does sound work? I don't have a faintest idea. How sound works? I don't have a faintest idea. How it works for me? Okay, um... ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sounds, sound bites, and little sonic tidbits we find all over the world. Overseas, underground, on the web, or off the record, we listen to everything we can get our ears on and then play you the best of what we hear each week on ReSound. Whenever anything happens that disturbs the air, creates a vibration, because the air gets knocked around. The sound travels through the air to my ears, my receptors pick it up, I process it in my brain, and... So that air with the vibration and it goes into your ear, and then there's tiny little hairs in your ear that move. Then what happens? I don't know. And then your brain hears it. I don't know. Some magic. Let's call it magic. (laughs) No matter how simply the mechanics of sound are explained to me, I've never really understood them. Not something you want to admit when you work in, oh yeah, radio. On paper, sure, I get it. Vibrations come from a source, they go through the air, and enter into your ear only to be interpreted by your brain as a barking dog or your best friend's voice. But really, it just seems like magic. Take music, for instance. Music. Beautiful, wonderful music which can elevate your mood until you're dancing naked in the moonlight or deplete it until you stop showering for a month. That entire flurry of sensation boils down to wave patterns and neurochemical events. Not exactly romantic, perhaps, but endlessly fascinating. How sound works? That's a good question. Today on ReSound, we explore how and why we're wired for sound. From the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, here's The Nerve, Music in the Brain, hosted by Joey Taylor and produced by Paolo Pietropaolo and Chris Brooks. Corpus Sometimes I feel like music is nothing. Just a bunch of sounds arranged into patterns, completely ephemeral. I could find a rhythm in the rain on the roof, but it could literally dry up, just like that. I've come up with great melodies in my head, only to have them lost in the din of a shopping mall. It's kind of like us people. We are a collection of amino acids and proteins animated by hormones and neurotransmitters. Everything we do, all the stuff we make, is a way of insisting that we're at least capable of being permanent. Music can't build a building, but I can, and slap my name above the doorway if I like. And yet, after I'm dead and gone, people not yet born will sing songs written before I came to be. I'm Joey Taylor. This is The Nerve. Music is in my head. 
Let's start at the very beginning. A very good place to start. When you read, you begin with A, B, C. When you sing, you begin with Do, Re, Mi. Do, Re, Mi. Do, Re, Mi. The first three notes just happen to be Do, Re, Mi. Do, Re, Mi. Do, Re, Mi, Fa, So, La, Ti. Oh, let's see if I can make it easier. Hearing is one of your senses. I'm Dr. Marshall Chasen. I'm the Director of Auditory Research at the Musicians Clinics of Canada. You use the sound coming in through your ears, going up through your auditory or eighth nerve, up to a certain part of the brain called the auditory cortex, where you can receive the sound. The ear is made up of three major parts. The outer ear, that's the part that we see that we hang our glasses on. Then we have the middle ear, that's behind the eardrum where the three little tiny bones are situated. Uh, then we get into the inner ear. The inner ear is the size of my small fingernail, packed with 13 to 15,000 nerve endings and filled with fluid. And as the sound comes in from the outer ear, through the eardrum and the middle ear, vibrations are set up in the inner ear that then cause the nerve endings to bend and flex. And this bending and flexing causes neurological impulses to go up the eighth auditory nerve up to the brain. So we say, ah, oh, we hear it. I must say that I was stunned by what I learned from infants about music, and that changed the way I relate to music. I found that babies could do most of what we could do. They listened to music the way we do. They noticed the things that we did, and it really started me thinking about music what it can do for us, the fact that we're able to learn what we can about it, and the fact that none of that would be possible if we didn't start with a fundamental interest in it. You know, music is everywhere. It's in everybody's life. In fact, it's inside your body, so, you know, your heartbeat, your, your rhythm of your body, and it's outside everywhere, so you just have to listen. I mean, you see the birds and the, the, the wind blow, so music is really everywhere. It's, it's part of ourselves, it's part of our, of our universe. Music is part of the sound signaling system, and the sound system that we have, our sense of hearing, actually comes uh, evolutionarily from detectors that, you know, it's related to detectors that insects and fish have for detecting disturbances in the environment. What you need to know if you're a fish is if, you know, there's something moving towards you. And the way you know that is by current changes. If you watch a stream moving uh, past an object in the water, you'll see 
in response to the tiny ripples or waves that come into it, a whole series of very small uh, ripples reflecting back from it or reflecting forward from it. If you're an insect, that's the same thing. You need to know if there's a sudden gust of wind, if there's a predator approaching, and air has this quality similar to water that the disturbances move molecules that uh, can push against a receptor that you have. Well, each sound has a vibration. That vibration goes into the ear. It is slightly amplified by the outer part of the ear that we see, the pinna. Goes to the eardrum. The eardrum vibrates in synchrony with this sound. It sets the little bones in the middle ear vibrating to and fro. Insects have these little hairy things on their legs that can sense the movement of the air. And these develop into hearing for us. Hearing is essentially a very sophisticated and nuanced way of detecting changes in the air. Mm. Short, abrupt, sharp changes that are non-repetitive may signal a danger, as opposed to, say, the rain on the, the top of your, your hutch if you're a right. rabbit, or the, the wind swaying a tree in a very rhythmic way. You don't need to alert and startle to that because it's something regular. Yeah. But you do need to alert and startle to the sudden footstep step of a mountain lion or a rock coming your way. Right, and especially something that's out of pattern. Yeah, exactly. And this vibration is transmitted through the middle ear to the inner ear, or the cochlea. And these bones set up a vibration in the fluid of the cochlea, which causes the nerve endings to vibrate in synchrony, sends up a neurological impulse to the brain, and we say, ah, we've heard it. The brain's a giant change detector, Joey, and it easily habituates and becomes numb to repetition and then is startled into paying attention again with anything out of the ordinary.
we listen to something, we sense timbre, we sense location, we sense all these incredibly complex, that seems too much for something that's a set of transmitted vibrations. So what else is going on? The ear is really no more than a microphone. It's a diaphragm, we call it the eardrum, which transmits the sound up to the brain. I think part of the reason that the sound sounds different, or music sounds different to us than just a, a, an input to a microphone, is that we have two ears. And then we have something called the human brain, which is the most powerful computer around. Having the two ears actually allows us to pick out the signal what we want to hear and disregard the background noise, the stuff that we don't want to hear. And then the sound is integrated in a very complex manner in the human brain. We know that this is the case because there are some people from time to time who, through trauma or disease, lose one ear but have an intact other ear, and although they can hear speech, they don't really appreciate the subtleties of music like you and I might appreciate it. Each sound, let's say, take the example of the, a middle sound on the piano keyboard, has a vibration, and the vibration has a certain height or amplitude, that's the loudness. It also has when it starts, and that's called the phase. And uh, the human brain is a wonderful ability to detect phase differences. For example, if a sound is off to our left-hand side, the sound is going to hit our left ear a moment before it hits our right ear. And a difference in timing or difference in phase allows us to say, oh, it's over to our left-hand side. A beautiful sonata from Beethoven or beautiful music from a, a rock or a pop group, not only are we looking at the range of intensities and vibrations, but we're also looking at the phase relationships, the fact that it's in front of us or maybe over to the left of us, or maybe we're in a room and yes, we're hearing the sound up on stage, but we're hearing the reflected sound off of the ceiling, off the wall. Uh, nobody can truly enjoy music in a non-echoey or non-reverberant environment. We need a, a certain amount of background reverberation or echo to give us the joy of music. What's happening when you hit a single note on the piano? I mean, we could talk about that for an hour. Uh, there's so much going on. <laughs> the string is vibrating in multiple modes. It's causing some sympathetic vibrations with other strings, causing vibration to occur on the soundboard of the piano and other parts of the piano vibrate. All these things are very complicated. Essentially, all this causes disturbances of molecules in the air. Those 
molecule set up a traveling wave, a, a pressure wave, that impinges on your eardrum, causing it to wiggle in and out. The remarkable thing is that you're able to detect and pull out a single entity when you consider that the only information your brain has is your eardrum wiggling in and out. Mm. That's the primary sensory receptor. Your eardrum wiggles in and out, and all of that somehow becomes the auditory experience. You have no more information than that. It's the pattern of wiggling, the rate of it and the depth of it, uh, that your brain has to use to extract the information. That sets up a kind of neurochemical and mechanical chain of events. The interesting there, thing there is that different parts of your brain, um, as soon as the signal makes its way up from the eardrum, different parts of the brain process different aspects of the sound. So pitch is extracted in one part of the brain and tempo in another and timbre in yet another and all these different pitch things that were extracted are formed into a representation of melody somewhere else and it gets put together later. You don't realize it because it happens so fast and it's happening without your conscious awareness. Now that I've told you this process, you don't have any control over it. You can't decide to turn off the pitch mechanism, even if I showed you where it was in your brain. It's automatic. You can't turn it off. Uh, but at some point, everything comes together, and you have this sense of, oh, well, that was the melody, and these were the instruments playing it. Yeah. My name is Daniel Levitin. I'm a cognitive neuroscientist at McGill University and the author of This Is Your Brain on Music, The Science of a Human Obsession. It's part of common currency now to, to be able to talk about parts of the brain, the language part of the brain, the spatial part of the brain. What's the music part of the brain? Well, that's an interesting thing. There isn't a music part of the brain. Music is distributed widely throughout all different parts of the brain. It's more accurate to say that every part of the brain has a music part. We know that from a number of different studies, from people who get lesions to widely different parts of the brain and lose some aspect of their musical functioning. We know it from neuroimaging studies where we can track which neurons or populations of neurons are firing in response to music. But to give you an example, when you're listening to a piece of music, whether you know it or not, and uh, whether you're a musician or not, there's a part of your brain that's trying to figure out what's going to come next. Just as it does if I were to start a sentence like, the pizza was too hot to... Ray, a drop of gold you know, your brain's trying to... You, you, you come up with a plausible hypothesis about what I'm going to say next. Right. I'm probably going to say eat or touch, maybe. But there aren't that many... I can't say the pizza was too hot to sleep. Right. <laughs> right? <laughs> you could. <laughs> You'd be put away. <laughs> right. Uh, but with music, we're doing the same thing. We hear a chord progression, we hear notes, and there's a part of our brain that's sensitive to the structure and trying to figure out, again, we may not be aware that this is going on. Uh, and that's in the frontal lobes, just behind the eyebrow. Me, a name I call myself, far, a long, long way to run. There's another part of the brain that's tracking the beat and trying to predict when the next pulse is going to be. That's in the back of the brain, in the cerebellum. A note to follow so Tea, a drink with jam and bread That will bring us back to There is a part of the brain that extracts pitch in the temporal lobes. It's really spread out all over. These centers are linked, their language is chemical then? It's electrochemical. So mm -hmm. the neurons have 
electrical activity and they cause chemicals in the brain to either be taken up or to be excreted. And the synapse, which is a word we all know, is the cleft between two different neurons that takes up different neurochemicals, such as neurotransmitters, such as dopamine and serotonin and things like that. Epinephrine, norepinephrine. So, and what is dopamine exactly? Well, dopamine is a so-called feel-good hormone. It's released by the brain and naturally responds to a number of different events. One of the things that's interesting about it is that if you win a bunch of money or you eat chocolate or you have an orgasm, dopamine is produced as an indicator that this is something pleasurable. And in my laboratory, we conducted the first study that concluded that dopamine was produced when you listen to music you like. The Nerve, the nerve. Episode, Episode 1. So I'm driving along in the summertime in a rented car. I got the windows down and the radio up. American Woman by the Guess Who comes on. Now, I don't normally listen to classic rock stations, but this song is so ingrained in my head from childhood that right at the perfect moment, after the second repeat of the riff, right along with Burton Cummings, I go, Ugh! I got probably hundreds of songs in my head where I know every hit and every swell and click and echo, every note. That amazes me. What amazes me even more is when I hear something I've never heard before and I feel it entering that part of the brain, like this novel thing just lining up and falling into place even while it totally surprises me. We've learned through a lifetime of listening that there are certain chords and certain notes that we expect to hear. Do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti. What we find rewarding about music is... Do, oh, 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 do. As I say, we're, we're trying to figure out what's going to come next, and the composer's trying to stay a step ahead of us. The composer's job is to reward us enough of the time that he or she holds our attention, you know, so that we have some sense that we know where it's going. But he or she, the composer, has to violate our expectations some of the time in order to surprise us. Otherwise, it becomes boring. Music that's entirely predictable, like a story that's entirely predictable, is not interesting. Mm -hmm. Music that's too surprising, we're on edge because we don't really know where it's going. So the balance has to be there. We find it rewarding when the composer is able to violate our expectations, but in a way that still feels good. So imagine I'm listening to a piece of music and it takes some funny little turn that I didn't expect. But in retrospect, I realized, wow, that, that's pretty good. I never would have thought it would go there, but I like it. When a composer can do that a few times in a song, mm. well, that's the kind of song you can love for the rest of your life.
name is uh, Jimena Llopis and I'm the general manager of Europe, Middle East and Asia of Music Intelligence Solutions. You are the developer of hit song science technology, your company is. Can you describe to us how this technology works? Well, it's analyzing all musical parameters, you know, from a lot of melody parameters, rhythm parameters, brightness, harmony, pitch. And then there's some physical parameters like amplitude, you know, noise uh, and all things like that. And it was very interesting because at the beginning we analyzed all the hits from 1950 on and we found out that there was very defined parameters like a finite number of clusters where the hit songs kind of cluster together. So what we do is for each country we analyze the best window. Normally it's around five years. We see the clusters that are active at that moment for hit songs for that country. And then when a new song comes in, we can see if it's in a cluster that is kind of uh, emerging or if it's in an established cluster. So basically, we do the music analysis, we put learning systems on top of that, and we're able to see what clusters, hit clusters, are active at that moment for that country. Music is, is incredibly mysterious, and anybody that tells you they think they know what it is or how it works, I would advise to not believe it, because what I can say is that I've spent, I don't know how many years at this point, trying to play the violin, and being a part of many different musical adventures, and I have no idea how it really works. It's, um, it's a mystery. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. We're listening to The Nerve, Music and the Brain, which explores exactly why and how people are wired for sound. We'll get back to the show in just a minute, but first we invite you to send us your thoughts, questions, comments, advice, recipes, jokes, favorite sounds, what have you. Our address is resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. And now we go back to The Nerve from the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, hosted by Joey Taylor. What we have is like a, a tool that can actually see this data in a way that was not, you know, we were not able to see before. But it's not like then you can say, okay, so you have to put 2% of this and 3% of that and 20% of that. So you cannot do that. It's just like, you know, like an ultrasound. You can see now things that uh, you were not able to see before in the music, but you cannot create life from the ultrasound. 
What seems to be happening is that there's a very interesting way that humans perceive music. You need to have like a good equilibrium between complete innovation or you know complete randomness of, of the music. And uh, say you know a single tone. Those are like the two extremes. Both are annoying to the human ear and you know the human brain and heart. So if you get the right combination of innovation and prediction, let's say, it seems that then that's best like for the human enjoyment. Can you give me an example of one that does it for you? Oh, there are so many, but I guess one example that's easy to talk about is the song Yesterday by the Beatles. The way that it surprises us is very subtle. Almost all popular music that we listen to has phrases that are eight measures long. A measure is if you're counting along and you're tapping your foot, it's typically you count one, two, three, four. That's a measure. Most songs have eight measures for a verse and then another eight measures for a verse, and then they may go to an eight-measure chorus. Yesterday is built on a seven-measure phrase. Hmm. Suddenly, I'm not half the man I used to be. There's a shadow hanging over me. Oh, yesterday came suddenly. Why? And most people don't know that, but they feel that there's something a little different about yeah. it. And that's surprising. It, it's McCartney experimenting with something new in a kind of implicit, subtle level, but it comes back to surprise us every single time. Yeah. Yesterday, love was such an easy game to play. I need a place to hide away. Oh, I believe in yesterday. Such an easy game to play. I need a place to hide away. Oh, I believe in yesterday. Mm -hmm. Another example of expectations is the opening to Stevie Wonder's Superstition. drum track. Mm-hmm. He plays drums on Superstition. To set it up, he's playing something that sounds like... Most drummers would leave it at that. But Stevie's very innovative and very inventive. So he's playing around with the beat. He hits the cymbal a little bit harder and a little bit softer each time. He hits it in a slightly different place. And if you listen to those opening few seconds, you hear a variety, a huge variety of nuance and subtlety there. You may not be consciously aware of it, but your brain sure is. And that's why the opening to the song is so compelling. Hmm. The brain's a giant change detector, Joey. Auditory cortex. The frontal lobe. Auditory cortex. 
Music has these components that are constant across all different musical cultures uh, in the world. Pitch is one of them. That's the difference between a low note and a high note. Very superstitious. Auditory cortex. Writings on the wall. And you've got rhythm, which is the length of a note. Ba versus ba ba ba. Timbre is the sound of the what makes a trumpet and a piano sound different, even if they're playing the same note. There's also, in particularly in modern recordings and modern performances, an element of spatial location where it's coming from. The drums are coming from one side, and the guitars from the other. We also have harmony. The notes exist if more than one is note is playing in relation to one another. The frontal note. Giant change In a cathedral hearing a mass, the music is swimming around the space and around your head, and that's an important part of it. Part of that, that spatial location, is the reverberant environment, how much echo there is. Giant change Every culture that we know of has music. Giant change there is no culture now or any time in the past that lacked it. And they all play around with all these elements. Melody, rhythm, harmony, amplitude, pitch. The joy of music. Giant change detector. Ah, we hear it. There isn't a music part of the brain. Music is distributed widely throughout all different parts of the brain. It's more accurate to say that every part of the brain has a music part. I went to a funeral in Bangkok. I didn't understand the words of the service, and some of the ritual offerings and the fireworks were a bit of a mystery, but I had no problem recognizing it as a funeral, from the black clothes to the friends and family crying. But the music was anything but familiar. Instead of solemn dirges, the temple ensemble played a kind of noisy, exuberant music. I guess it was partly a way to speed the soul of the departed on its way, and partly an antidote to everyone else's sense of loss. In that one moment, it all felt so familiar and so different. It was, in one way, this completely specific and local thing, and at the same time, it felt totally universal. I'm Sandra Trehub from the University of Toronto. I'm a psychologist, and I've been specializing in the study of music in infants for several years now. In adults, we knew that people are very interested in music. They spend much of their time 
they spend a lot of money, you know, to be connected with music, and that it is an important way that people manipulate their moods, psych themselves up for things, soothe themselves, remember people by, you know, the songs they knew, these nostalgic feelings about certain eras in your life that are tied to music. There was every reason to believe that all that interest in music just resulted from our history of listening to it, and even that the emotional connections would come from that. The possibility that we might start out with some dispositions for music, there wasn't any notion that that would be likely at the time. You didn't set out thinking that you were going to find something. Wow. Originally, I would just take really a random set of tones and just manipulate them in different ways. And I was thinking first about the contour, how they go up and down, because I know when mothers speak to babies, they emphasize the pitch contours in their speech. You know, so no one just says, you know, hi, baby, it's hi, baby, what are you doing? And so on. I was looking at those kinds of things, pitch contours, never thinking that the precise notes mattered or the intervals. But, you know, out of curiosity, I decided to see, well, what if you actually followed the rules of legitimate musical systems? What would happen? And suddenly I found that babies were remembering those tunes better than others. So as soon as you started violating the rules or doing things that were impossible in any musical culture, that's something that didn't sound good to us, but we'd think, ah, it's just unfamiliar. But it didn't make sense to babies either, in the sense that they couldn't remember. So at that point, you started looking for universals? Yeah. I decided to look at infants and look at the things that they could do and the things that were important for them in music and try and see whether those features were common in musics of the world. And it turns out that they are. The octave appears to be a musical universal. That is two notes that stand in a relationship to one another that one of them is twice the frequency of the other. We see it in our scale. It's ba da 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 The low note and the high note are given the same name in the scale. We might call them both C. C, D, E, F, G, A, B, C. The same note name is given in recognition of the fact that there's something perceptually in common that those two notes share. Pitch is related to frequency. Frequency is what you measure. Pitch is this sensation that you have. So when we hear things that sound like an octave apart, like the first two notes of Somewhere Over the Rainbow, if you look at the frequencies, every time you have an octave, you have a doubling of the frequency. So you have a ratio of two to one. 
a very simple ratio. Our brains evolved in the physical world, and there are certain physical regularities in the world. When objects vibrate, they tend to vibrate in several modes at once, whether you're talking about you know, a drum or a, a hollowed-out bone, you pluck a string, you're getting multiple modes of vibration that tend to have these simple integer ratio relationships. So the octave comes out of that, and our appreciation of it is wired into us because for tens of thousands of years, our brains heard sounds that had these particular properties. In addition to the octave, you have the perfect fifth, which seems to be present in every culture. Maybe if you measure it instrumentally, it may be off slightly, but in terms of listeners, they can't hear the difference. So that seems to be an important anchor. So you have these basic building blocks, and then cultures fill things in in different ways. thing about pitch is that every musical system we know of has a limited number of pitches, not an unlimited number. And it tends to be 7 to 12 pitches that they use. Our own scale has 12 notes, the chromatic scale, but we tend to use 7 at a time, the so-called major scale or minor scale. And this probably has something to do with the limits of memory resolution. Pitch. If we think about the major scale in music, because that's highly overlearned, people seem to think that it goes in equal steps. But if you think very closely, or if you look at the piano, you see that you don't have a black note between every two white notes. There are a couple places where you don't, between your B and C, or T do. That's really just a semitone. And no scale in the world has just equal distances between all the steps. That's thought to be of psychological importance in terms of helping us remember things. And, and we actually tested infants, and when we used invented scales that had equal intervals, babies weren't able to notice changes in that context. And when we used scales also invented, that had this principle of unequal steps, they were able to do so. So there are certain principles of even how you fill in the notes of a melody. There's room for arbitrariness, but it's not completely arbitrary. And what some musicologists think is that this notion of an unequal scale steps helps us find our place in a melody. They're like landmarks and stabilizers. Mm -hmm.
I'm picturing putting an infant in, in a room and, you know, a Western European infant, they're enjoying the Barney melody, and then you put on some gamelan music, and the suggestion is that they would have no trouble absorbing the rules of the gamelan. Right. Now, we have to distinguish between melodies and, you know, when you're thinking about gamelan, a big part of that sound for us is the instrumentation. So if you were to take away some of those metal instruments that have a particular quality to the sound, it wouldn't have the sound that you normally associate with a gamelan. And there was a researcher that did use uh, scales that are used in Indonesian music with infants. And, you know, with six-month-old infants, you know, it made no difference to them. So it's not a question simply of the notes, but, you know, part of what we learn in every culture is certain instruments become familiar with their sound qualities. We live in an age where, especially in popular music, when we listen to Joni Mitchell or to Bruce Springsteen or to Arcade Fire, we are developing a connection with the artist through their songs and through their voice. And the timbre of their voice is unique. I don't know if you remember the little experiment you did with the crowd at the Authors Festival with a particular yes. opening chord. Can you just describe what you did at that? Because that was amazing. Well, I played 500 milliseconds, half a second, of one note of a well-known song. It's too short for there to actually be a melody emerging because it's, it's not even one note. No rhythm there because, again, it's not even one note. But almost everybody in the audience recognized what the piece was. Yeah. It's obviously Eleanor Rigby. Not everybody recognized it as Eleanor Rigby, but almost everybody recognized it as the Beatles. It's so distinctive. And it's because the brain is so exquisitely sensitive to timbre that we're able to do that. It's no surprise the brain would be that sensitive to timbre because it serves an important evolutionary function. Again, in our cave-dwelling past, when the sun would go down, you couldn't see people. You'd need to be able to recognize somebody by their voice. And moreover, you'd need to be able to tell whether they were angry with you mm. or happy with you as you know, by the sound of their voice. Mm. And all of that is really about timbre. I must say that I was stunned by what I learned from infants about music. It really started me thinking about music, what it can do for us, the fact that we're able to learn what we can about it, and the fact that none of that would be possible if we didn't start with a fundamental interest in it. I was going to test babies with foreign materials of different kinds and made contacts with ethnomusicologists who specialized in different musical systems and asked them if they would find some simple materials for me such that I could use them with babies. They would have to go into whatever cultural group they were studying and that 
simplification would have to satisfy people in that culture that it was really, you know, Indonesian or from this part of Africa, you know, or whatever it was. And when they brought back those materials to me, it was terribly disappointing because they no longer sounded like <laughs> anything that was foreign. Once you got down to something simple, it was all sounding pretty similar. Amazing. So that actually goes back to what we were saying earlier about timbre and ornamentation being where the culture, the yes. choices, the preferences really come. Right. So you start from a common set and then you go somewhere with it. You develop it in ways that suit your culture. So, you know, I would argue that there's more that's common across musical systems than is the case across language systems. The Nerve. The Nerve. Episode 1. One of my favorite painters is Mark Rothko. His canvases are those big ones with a field of color that runs right to the edge and then these big rectangular shapes, sometimes one or two or three, that are just these blocks of color, sometimes not that different from the background color. Well, I can stand in front of those paintings at the Albright Knox Gallery for ages and just feel them. It's like I'm actually plugged into them somehow. If the top bar is a kind of a warm orange, I feel warm in my chest. If the bottom block is a cold black, I get a chill in my gut. And I've always said that for me, Rothko's paintings are like music. I don't just see them. I feel them. I hear them. Loud sound is enjoyable. It's more of a visceral sort of thing. When rock and rollers say that music has to be loud, they are correct. Do you have a particular physical reaction to it? Yes, I do. I do. What is it? It's on my, not on the back of my neck, the hair on my arms. Music, much more than any medium that might engage another human being through light, like a picture. Music makes the cells of our bodies vibrate. It stimulates the surface of our skin. It makes us, in a way, feel literally in sympathetic vibration with the environment around us. It surrounds us completely. That's, of course, the reason we find joy in it. Loud sound is enjoyable. It's as simple as that. And as an audiologist, I'm sometimes torn between the two extremes. Too loud and it can be potentially damaging to your hearing. Too soft and no one's going to listen to it. And what about bass? We're, we're, we're all very attracted to bass, too. Bass is actually very good. And again, it's more of a visceral sort of thing. Loudness is given to us by our bass response. The more bass there is, the louder it seems to be. In fact, if you can really turn up the bass, after a while you can feel it. You don't have to hear it anymore. You can sit on a loudspeaker and you, or put your hand on a loudspeaker, and if it has a significantly good bass response, you will feel it. And it's this visceral bass feeling that also adds to the whole hearing mechanism. I think that comes down to rhythm. 
I think that if you listen to some of the simplest music from cultures that obviously existed from prehistory into our notion of history, you hear the heartbeat right in the music. Da-da, da-da, da-da. is a rhythm that shows up in a lot of Native American music, for instance. What we find rewarding about music is... First of all, loudness, and then a kind of very regular kind of beat. I think that it just kind of pulls out all the plugs. So if you get the right combination... It's um it's a mystery. You've been listening to The Nerve. In this episode, you heard the voices of... Bruce Coburn. Jimena Jobis. Marshall Chasen. Ellen DeSanayaka. Laurie Kierkegaard. Suzanne Cusick. David Harrington. Sandra Treha. Daniel Levitin. And the music of Rogers and Hammerstein and Julie Andrews, Arvo Pert, Antonin Dvorak, Ludwig van Beethoven, Stevie Wonder, Arnold Schoenberg, Radiohead, The Beatles, Maurice Ravel, Judy Garland... Amjad Ali Khan, the Royal Jug Jakarta Palace Gamelan, Peter Tchaikovsky, and the Rolling Stones. I'm Joey Taylor. That's the end of this nerve. Thanks for listening. The Nerve Music and the Brain. Hosted by Joey Taylor with production and sound design by Paolo Pietro Paolo and Chris Brooks. Music in the Brain is only one episode in a six-part series by the same folks who brought you the amazing radio show called The Wire, which explores the impact of electricity on sound. To find a link to all these fantastic programs, visit thirdcoastfestival.org. While you're there, Check out our newest Third Coast Short Talks Challenge called Book Odds. It's a collaboration between us, the Third Coast Festival, one of our favorite bands, the books, and you. Experienced radio makers and newbies alike are invited to create three-minute stories that incorporate sounds and samples from the book's vast library of musical bits, strange phrases, and sonic doodads. Here's a taste. I'm in a strange town tonight. Nobody knows me here. Nobody expects anything of me. I can disappoint no one. With you. So get off your duff, grab a mic, and go online for all the details. Thirdcoastfestival.org. You listen and you know you've always wanted to try your hand at this radio stuff. Here is your chance. You may also win a chance to meet the books and present your work along with theirs in front of a live audience at a very cool event. 15 minutes of fame in a three-minute radio story. Go to thirdcoastfestival.org.
The ear then is a very delicate and complicated mechanical device. Okay, so you you talk, you make a shape like with your tongue. Astonishingly sensitive in its ability to separate and to distinguish a vast medley of sounds. Okay, it, it disturbs the air in a certain way. It excels by far the most ingenious and delicate instruments ever devised by man. It, it, the, the vibration or the disturbance floats into my ear. While we possess the great blessing of good hearing. And moves the hammer and the anvil. Let us always strive to protect and to preserve. And then they send a message to my brain of what the sound was, and then my brain recognizes it. This most precious gift of nature. And here's it. ReSound is a production of the Third Coast International Audio Festival, an independent media arts organization in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. ReSound is produced by Delaney Hall and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro. Our fearless Third Coast interns are Annie Geimer and Jacob Anderson. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear hundreds of outstanding documentaries from around the world and subscribe to our podcast. The Third Coast Festival is made possible with lead support from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Boeing Company Charitable Trust, Chicago's Navy Pier, and American Airlines. The Third Coast Festival was founded in 2000 by Chicago Public Radio. Music for ReSound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.